Welcome to Sunday School for Heathens. The show where we learn about Christianity and how weird it sounds to everyone else. I'm Shannon. And I'm Brian. I am not a priest and I do not have a degree in theology. I'm just the kind of guy who people apologize to without prompting for celebrating Christmas in a secular way. Ooh, I feel like now I have to apologize to you for celebrating secular Christmas. (laughs) It's happened to me like three times and it's kind of weird. I mean, I don't understand why... I don't feel a need to apologize until I know that other people are apologizing for it. And now it feels weird and, like, I have to. But I also, like, don't do a particularly religious Christmas. I, like, go to Mass in, like, on Christmas morning. But other than that, I do, like, Santa and things. Is there a... Is Santa just inherently secular and that's the problem? I was gonna say, is there a more religious way to do Christmas than going to Mass? I mean, like, you can not do the secular things. Like, there are some people who are opposed to, like, the Frosty the Snowman song and that kind of stuff. Okay, well, those people are just killjoys. Um, but I think <laughs> I think some people think that's me, and it's not. <laughs> Let it be clear, no one has ever referred to you as a killjoy for any reason. You are the jolliest. Oh, thank you. Um, and, you know, I'm working on my, uh, my Santa beard. If it's white, I'm all set. I was gonna say, once your beard goes white, you've got some prime... Santa options available to you. Oh, yeah. I am so ready for my future as a mall Santa. Oh, that would be great. (laughs) Anyway, it is not yet Christmas for us, but by the time this premieres, it will be past Christmas, so I did not do another Christmas episode. Sorry for anyone who wanted one. You know what? We did quality (laughs) Christmas. Last week, we talked about the birth of Jesus. We talked about the three wise men. There was a lot of Christmas. So... I think it's okay. What are we talking about? This week, we're talking about saints. Great! Saints all saints? Uh, not like individually, no. Wait, this isn't going to be one long patronage pop quiz, oh, is it? Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> I can breathe a sigh of relief then. We talk about saints every week because we do the patronage pop quiz, but I haven't ever actually explained like kind of what saints are. How we ended up with them. That's true. And I guess I just take for granted that saints are a thing. I don't really understand why they're a thing. So I guess that means it makes a good topic for this week. Yeah. And saints or something similar to that exist in a lot of major religions. So I could get into that, but we're really just going to talk about saints in the Christian context. Okay, great. Saints as a concept exist in the Bible The word saint originates from a Greek word that just means holy or set apart. This word is used 68 times in the New Testament, and it's pretty much always referring to a group of people. Interesting. So saints were originally a a collective. Yeah, it basically it meant the faithful, like Christians. It was not referring to a set apart class really beyond just like the average christian so when when there weren't very many christians all christians were saints quote unquote well all christians are still saints actually oh i didn't know that we talked about in the nicene creed the communion of saints was a line that was in there yes that is true the communion of saints just means the church so all of the christians all of the, the saints mm-hmm. in communion with each other is the church all right so if you're a member of the church you're technically a saint. Correct. So you're Saint Brian. Sure. You wouldn't call me that with that title. Okay. How <laughs> do you earn the title of saint? We get to that. So in a biblical context, we don't have that. All right. We mostly we have the concept of saint in the biblical sense is in the epistles, which are the letters that Paul wrote. Paul! And a couple other people. All right. uh, Paul and Friends. Yeah, there's a few others, but it's mostly what we have is Paul. Wait, what kind of band is Paul and Friends? What kind of music do they make? Folk rock? Sure. Okay. (laughs) St. Paul and Friends, our new favorite Christian folk rock group. Oh, boy. Uh, We don't even need to get into Christian folk rock. Okay. (laughs) That's a topic for a later episode. I'm going to give a little bit of background on the epistles, just because we haven't talked about them before, really. All right. Other Uh, than that Paul exists. Yeah. Paul traveled around teaching the Gentiles the message of Jesus. He made three trips between 47 and 57 CE, traveling all around the Mediterranean. And as he traveled, he started churches. 
he continued to correspond with these churches as specific issues came up. So the, the epistles, the letters that we have, are meant for specific issues in specific places at these churches that he started. So they're just franchises emailing corporate because they don't know how to handle an issue? Yeah. Actually, yeah. <laughs> I got it right! <laughs> That's a pretty good explanation. Brilliant. Is it kind of like when the Supreme Court makes rulings, they just become the law because of whatever that technical term is that has totally escaped me? That because Paul... Precedents? Yeah. So Paul creates a series of religious precedents? Yeah, and he also, in addition to sending them to the communities, they were also distributed more widely. Okay. Including in Jerusalem, kind of to just push his ideas. All right. So all of these letters, the ones that we have left, are in the New Testament. Okay. Some of them were definitely not written by Paul, but we say they were. Who were they written by then? We don't know. Okay. There's lots of theories. Cool. But we all say that they're by Paul. When in doubt, it was Paul. Yeah. Uh, We just pretend. We used to think they were all Paul. And then at some point we realized that was silly? Yeah. Okay. So an example of Saint in one of Paul's letters is he greets the church at Corinth. And he says that they, all who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. um, So they are all holy people because they're sanctified in Christ Jesus. Okay. And so he's just telling you, you're all saints. Congratulations. Welcome to being saints. Yeah, and so all of you can call on the name of the Lord Jesus because you're saints. So you're all holy. Good for Uh, you. Congratulations. Here's a cookie. And he says kind of a similar thing when he's saying, when he's closing out the, in the Philippians, he says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The friends who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of the emperor's household. So he's just saying, we're all saints. We all greet you. You all greet each other. You're all saints. Saints greet saints. We're all saints. Saints. Yeah. Christ- a, lot, a lot of saints there. Yeah. Christians, saints, it's kind of, at this time, a similar thing. Okay. That sort of makes sense. Yeah. So just everybody who's a follower of Jesus is a saint. Um, now we know. And we're definitely referring to alive people at this time. All right. So saints have to be living, breathing humans who also believe in Jesus. Yeah. I don't know that they have have to be, but we definitely, the ones that we're talking about are alive. Okay. And I already, yeah, I mentioned that this carries over into the Nicene Creed when we talk about the communion of saints. Mm-hmm. And then we also get this confusing message from Paul in his letter to Timothy. He says, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all who are in high positions, so that they may lead a quiet and peaceful life, yada yada. And then he says that for there is one God, there is also only one mediator between God and humankind, Christ Jesus himself. So he tells us, pray for each other, but then he tells us there is no mediator but God. Okay, I don't know if that follows to me. Yeah, and there's a lot of debate later on. We get into can... Saints pray for each other, even in the alive sense. Okay. Can you pray with the dead saints, even later on? Yes and no. Yes and no. <laughs> you would think that people would be able to pray with other saints back when everybody was a saint, right? I mean, everybody's always still a saint. Okay. We're all still saints. We're just with a lowercase s rather than an uppercase. Ah, okay. <laughs> so that's kind of what we have from the Bible. And then after... Jesus and Paul and all of them die. Mm-hmm. We get into the heroic age. Ooh, that sounds dramatic. It is pretty dramatic. I'm into it. We talked about this a little bit before. Christians were in small communities until the third century, mm-hmm. and they weren't really persecuted in large numbers until about 250 CE. Okay. And even then, there were not that many actual martyrs, because a lot of people would just give in instead of dying. Okay. But the ones that did exist and did get martyred had their stories written down and they were admired. So this is like when they were, you know, writing big heroic epics about Greek heroes and Roman heroes and Viking heroes and all that, only they're a bunch of people who got martyred for being Christians because Christians were being persecuted? Yeah. They were definitely written in the same style as a lot of those Greek and Roman stories. 
So was being murdered then kind of popular because people were getting a lot of press for being murdered? Yes. There were some people who definitely wanted to be murdered. That seems not in the spirit of martyrdom. I, uh, yeah. <laughs> but I think we had a conversation about this off mic earlier <laughs> this week about the weirdness that is, if you want to be murdered, does it count as martyrdom? Yeah, but for the purposes of this, I mean, if, if you're not getting too critically into is it suicide or not, just take it as they're following Jesus because Jesus died for the faith. They want to be like Jesus and die for the faith too? Yes. It's basically what we're getting at this point. Alright, so the heroic age is just people who love Jesus so much they're willing to die for him, and sometimes they get stories written about them? Yes. Alright, and who is the guy, who's killing all of these Christians? The Roman authorities. Okay, are so we're, we're Romans right now. Yeah, we have a story of a woman named uh, Perpetua, who was a martyr in 202 in Carthage. Okay. We have her diary, which is really cool. Oh, that is cool. And it ends before her execution, obviously. Yes, that <laughs> checks out. But, so we have this, this story of this woman who is very faithful, and then it ends with the editor telling this crazy heroic story of her sacrifice and how it's so amazing and she was such a woman of faith. And so, like, this is to how we start to build up the legends of these martyrs and people hear about them. So none of the saint stories are in the Bible, then? They're all just additional texts and stories that are held in other ways? So there are some that are in the Bible. The first martyr is St. Stephen. He's in Acts of the Apostles. And we hear about him getting martyred. And the people who are killing him set down their cloaks by Paul for safekeeping. That's in there. Everyone just left their coats at the bar with the sober friend? I guess. Weird. Paul was still persecuting people at this point. Wait, Paul was persecuting Christians? Yeah, that's another story. I'm... <laughs> everything I know about Paul is a lie. <laughs> um, we'll, we'll do a, a full Paul. At some point, Brian has to make me hate Paul because he's confused about how much I like Paul. I'm sure he's not the only one. If you two are confused about how much I like Paul, you can tweet at us <laughs> at School for Heathens. You know where to find us. All right, so Paul is on the side of the persecutors right now. They all have Paul hold their cloaks. Yeah, that's not important. That was a side note. But But it was a quality side note. Stephen is a martyr who's in the Bible who is a saint. Paul's also a saint. But that's fine. There are saints. So there are a few martyrs in the Bible. Yeah. But a lot of them happen in this heroic age that is sort of technically post-Bible. Yeah. Lots of air quotes. I'm making a lot of air quotes. This is post-Bible. Okay. I don't know what that. What counts as post-Bible, so... Yeah, the the Bible was written by, like, the end of the first century. Okay, so anything after that is post-Bible. Yeah. Cool. That makes sense. Uh, So there was another guy who got martyred in 165. His Mm -hmm. name was Polycarp. That's a great name. Yeah. That sounds like Pokemon. I think it is. Someone please tell us whether (laughs) or not Polycarp is a Pokemon. I'm not going to Google it. So Polycarp's... Father gathered his bones after he died. Okay. Which is kind of one of the first examples that we see of preserving bits of a saint for future veneration. Okay. Because there's lots of saints that we have bits of now, right? Yes. We call those bits relics. It's like thumbs and hands and feet and weirdness. Yeah, all kinds of things. Who's, whose tongue is still preserved that we talked about recently? I don't remember off the top of my head. No, somebody's tongue. It was weird. Might have been Francis de Sales. Yeah, somebody who was good at talking. Yeah, that would be a relic. We'll, okay. We'll talk about relics another time. Uh, but this is the first time we, like, gather something that could later be construed as a relic. The earliest record we have of people doing that. Okay. So this is where we start to get into, we're building people up higher than other Christians. Yeah. They become mega-Christians. Yeah, and these stories were written to inspire people in the Mm -hmm. trying times because they were being persecuted. Persecuted. (laughs) So they wanted to give everybody an upside that they might be killed or tortured in some terribly gruesome way for their beliefs. Yeah. So that they keep believing and don't just run off at some point. Yeah, and this definitely worked because people started developing this theology around martyrs saying that they would immediately go to heaven. So it was like, if, if this bad thing happens to you, there's at least an upside. That is definitely an upside. 
And I couldn't find specifically how we got to this point, but one way that we might have is I mentioned Stephen in the Bible before. Mm-hmm, the one who got murdered. He Right before he was killed, he saw a vision of Jesus in heaven. Oh, so that shows that he might have... It feels like from there, he just went straight to Jesus because Jesus was who he saw. Yeah, so that's maybe how we got to that point. But that's what people started to believe. Great. So you get, you're adding on this layer that they're so holy, they're definitely in heaven. Okay. So then kind of the next stage we get is Constantine comes in and Christianity is now legal. Okay. And so there's less reason for someone to be martyred. Because now there's not persecution. Right. But weirdly at this point, the stories of martyrs actually become more popular. Why is that? Because people want to remember a time when people were heroically dying for their faith like Jesus. So they're looking back on the good old days? Kind of, I guess. There's fewer martyrs, so there's fewer people to look up to. So it's a scarcity thing, I guess. Okay. And so in this era, we get people building shrines and venerating the bodies of saints more widely. And also on a side note, as a technicality... Venerating is different than worship, and it is important to some people. That you don't worship saints because they're not holy in the same way that Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit are holy? You venerate saints because people semantically needed a different word? Kind of. Okay. And anyone who believes in saints as part of their faith, they really care about that distinction. People who do not like saints don't think there's a distinction. People don't like saints? There's a lot of people who don't think that it is proper to celebrate saints because they are not God, which... But humanity. (laughs) I feel like saints are important because they're human. They are, and they can be great role models, but also sometimes they get used improperly. Okay. But more on that later. Great. As we start to lift up martyrs as special and definitely in heaven... We hear the church fathers talk about praying with saints who are already dead instead of just the fellow saints on earth. Ah, so now everybody is a saint, but now you can pray with the dead ones too. Yeah, we talk about it more. Mm -hmm. Um, So like Cyprian of Carthage said in 253, let us on both sides of death pray for one another. We're still talking everybody pray for each other, but also the dead ones. Okay, that's sweet. I appreciate that. By 350, we have Cyril of Jerusalem calling out specific people to intercede instead of just all of the lowercase saints, both alive and dead. He says, uh, then during the Eucharistic prayer, we make mention also of those who have already fallen asleep. First, the patriarchs, prophets, apostles, martyrs, that through their prayers and supplications, God would receive our petition. So here we're getting to like, these are the important ones who kind of have God's ear. Ah, yeah. So you're... You're not praying to these saints because these saints have the power to do anything. You're praying to the saints because the saints are buddies with God. They can, like, put in a good word for you. That's kind of the idea. Okay. That, to me, makes more sense as to why you venerate saints, then. And why saints have a place in the practice. Is that you're giving specific... You're targeting your specific needs to specific people who then can sort of pass you along to God because God presumably is inundated with all of this stuff. That's the idea. And there are definitely problems with that idea. So the saints are the middlemen. Yeah. And like anything, there are problems when there's middlemen? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, they're middle management in this metaphor. Great. (laughs) I support this this metaphor. Augustine also in the 5th century talks about why it makes sense to venerate saints. He says, we have memorials for them so we can try to imitate them. So this is more about role models than it is about having God's ear. But how much do you want to be role modeled by a bunch of people who got themselves killed for being fanatical? But it was kind of the ultimate act of Christianity because you're doing the thing that Jesus did. Dying. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) But I feel like some saints also did some other crazy things to prove their faith besides just dying. I mean, yes, that's absolutely true. maybe you don't want to encourage people to do that kind of crazy? At this time, I think a lot of people were in support of that kind of crazy. Okay. I mean, I think it it ramps up a little more in the Middle Ages, but there's definitely people doing a lot of things in the name of Jesus. Well, to each their own, then. Augustine also says that when we say the names of the martyrs, 
out loud as when we read and pray at the altar. We aren't saying prayers for them. We are asking for their help. Uh, we should say prayers for others who have died, but the martyrs don't need it. Okay. So this is really when we're starting to get into the not all dead saints, uh, just the ones who are particularly good are the ones that know what's going on here. So now we're developing class levels within the dead saints? Kind of, yeah. So we're working more towards the modern concept of saint that I think you were thinking about when we came into this. So not everybody who died for being a Christian is a capital S saint. There are capital S saints and then there are other associated martyrs. And now we're starting to pull those apart. All martyrs are saints with a capital S. Oh, but some of them are... But this is like, if you just died, you were like a good person and you just died, you might be in purgatory still working off your sin debt. But if you're a martyr, you definitely went straight up to heaven. Okay, so what we're now doing is we're separating Christian saints on earth who just died from martyrs and people who did particularly religious things that have now elevated them straight to the upper echelon of heaven. Yeah, so you actually are getting right into my next point. Oh, great. So originally, the only people that we venerated were martyrs. Okay. But after Constantine, I like I said, we were running out of martyrs. martyrs. <laughs> because we stopped killing Christians for being Christians. Right. So we had to come up with other reasons to venerate people. Great. So this is where we get into confessors of the faith. Uh, the idea here is that these people lived such a holy life that when they they just lived their life confessing triumph of life over death just through their actions. All right. So is this Constantine when Constantine became a Christian Constantine or is this his pre-Christian Constantine? This is after he's a Christian. Okay, so he's the one who starts to realize that we need more saints and we don't have martyrs and so we need to start celebrating people? He's not doing this. Okay, it's just around this time. It's around this time because there are not Christians being persecuted anymore. True. So he aided in this happening, but there's no official recognition of saints by authorities. It's all local. Okay. But didn't Constantine's mom become a saint? She did, yeah. I feel like, isn't that Constantine creating an example by making a saint out of his own mom? He didn't make anybody a saint. Okay. Basically, it was communities of people would start to build shrines to someone that they thought was neat. <laughs> neat. <laughs> All right, so this is hyper-local saint. So do you- yeah, this is like local communities. This is like you, in your town, there was this holy man, and you're like, man, this guy, this guy definitely went to heaven just by the way he lived his life. Let's we should, build a shrine. Yeah, let's save his bones. Somebody hold on to them. <laughs> Because they weren't holding on to other people's bones? You would bury them, I think. I don't know the burial practices of Rome at this time. But <laughs> but we weren't burning the bodies. We weren't interring them. We were holding on to them for safekeeping. Yeah, or you'd like rub a piece of cloth against his bones and then hold on to that piece of cloth. That's arguably weirder. <laughs> I don't know why the cloth is weirder than the bones, <laughs> but it's definitely weirder. <laughs> Yeah, people were just doing local saints at this point, and sometimes the Pope would get involved and name a saint for everybody to like. Okay. Like, like an example of this would be, like, Mary. Yes. Like, Mary is not local to any community. Everybody should like Mary. And also, Mary was not a martyr, question mark? Mary was not a martyr. Okay, so... She would fall into this uh, confessors of the faith category. Great. The early adopters. Yeah. And other passionate people. Yeah, important people. Great. So, with this expanded definition of who could be named a saint, and the fact that any bishop really could make someone a saint, the number of saints soared in the 6th and 7th century. So many saints. Every cool guy in church, or probably guy who donated a lot of money to his local parish, got turned into a saint. Yeah, that second one is almost definitely true. (laughs) The party starts to come to an end. And rules are added. Pope Urban II called for an investigation into the sanctity and miracles of a guy named Nicholas of Turani in 1089. So is this the first time we start to think about miracles as being a qualifier for becoming a saint? Miracles were included in the earlier ones. But now they have to show receipts. 
yeah, now now we're starting to get, we want proof, we want to vet people who are getting in here or not. Okay. So this was kind of the first official canonization process. That's the word I've been trying to remember this whole podcast. <laughs> well, here it is. I found it. Canonization. In the 11th century. All right. <laughs> this process dragged on through several popes, and this guy never got around to being named a saint. Ever? No. Oh. Yeah. What if he was good? Not good enough, I guess. What if he was miraculous? You know, I don't know. I don't okay. know what to say. I guess you can't win a- Poor other Saint Nick, or would-be Saint Nick. Look, okay, we've officially <laughs> made this episode a little bit Christmassy. We've said Saint Nick. <laughs> I'm counting. <laughs> so then we get Pope Callistus II, who started requiring all candidates for sainthood to have a critical biography. This happened in 1119. Now, what on earth is a critical biography? So does that mean you have had someone follow you around your whole life and write down every cool thing you do? Or can this be done after you're dead? This is after you're dead. Okay. We're gathering evidence about these people in an official capacity. All right. Finally, in 1170, Pope Alexander III declared that only the Pope could name people saints. Finally. <laughs> so what happens to all these local saints? Do they just get erased from the history books? No, they're still there. Okay, but from here on out... But from this point, Alexander wants to be the only one who can name saints. He did this because he was mad about a Swedish man who was declared a martyr and therefore a saint because this guy died in a drunken brawl. What? <laughs> was it a drunken brawl over Christianity? Uh, I could not find the specifics of the drunken brawl, but presumably... I would like to make a note <laughs> that if anyone... Wants to imagine a modern-day drunken brawl over Christianity, Brian is definitely involved. Yikes. <laughs> thank you. Most likely to get in a bar fight for Jesus. Uh, no, thank you. <laughs> Fair. Even though Alexander made this rule, it wasn't officially church law until it was incorporated by Pope Gregory the Ninth in 1234. Okay. So now it's official. Only the Pope. Yeah. <laughs> We can slow our roll on naming everybody saints. Yeah. By the 14th century, we had kind of two tracks for this veneration. We had beatification and canonization. Oh, so those are different? They were definitely different at this time. Beatification allowed for limited veneration within a specific group or within a specific area. So it gives you some local saints? Yeah, but the whole church isn't supposed to venerate this person. It's just supposed to be, like, a certain group of nuns or a certain city. Okay, so is that where the, like, patron saint of wherever and whatever becomes a bit? That's probably part of where that idea comes from. So this is, like, this monastery had a monk who was really cool and nobody else knows he's cool except for the other monks, so we're going to beatify him so that the monks of this monastery can continue to venerate him. Yeah, and we just call them blessed. We don't call them saint. Okay. That's an important distinction. Yeah. So, yeah, this is separate from canonization, where the person becomes a saint, meaning you can publicly anywhere venerate this person. You're only supposed to privately pray for people who are not either of these things. Like, you're not supposed to, like, write hymns for them or, like, have fancy shrines. Okay, so you're not making shrines to your grandma and your mom and your high school teacher. Those you're just quietly praying for to yourself in services. And the, the shiny stuff goes for the people who've gone through official channels. Yeah, that's how it's supposed to work. Yeah. All right. So that's it. I find that interesting because there are so many family contexts where you build shrines to families. Mm -hmm. I think about... Uh, if anyone has seen Coco, the Afreda in on Dia de los Muertos is like a shrine, but full of family. But it's not a religious shrine in the same way, because those aren't people you are allowed to worship in that way. Right. Yeah. And, and they're, it's not in a church. Yeah. Um, so it's a little different. Um, okay. And I honestly can't speak too much to it. I'd love to hear the... Uh, the perspective of someone who is a Hispanic Catholic, if anyone out there listening has feelings on the subject and can explain to me a little bit more about the differences between the way you honor your family versus saints. Yeah, that sounds fascinating, and I definitely want to hear more. But back to uh, the processes here. Okay, so we've got a this process now. Is, this is where it gets 
Like, very legalistic. <laughs> Bureaucracy strikes again. So there's a trial for uh, both beatification or canonization. Okay. Do you have to be beatified before you can be canonized, or can you jump straight to canonization? Later we merge these two, and okay. beatification becomes a step towards canonization. Or we're still in, like, the 13th century or whatever? The 14th century, but okay. yeah. So, for the trial, there are two canon lawyers. Great. Canon lawyers don't go to, like, a normal law school. They get a master's or a PhD in canon law. And All right. So they're more closely, like, going to seminary than, like, going to law school? Kind of halfway between. But that means that somewhere there are schools that do this? Yes. And these guys mostly do annulments. <laughs> Man, you were signing up for a new life if you become a canon lawyer then. <laughs> oh yeah living like what I imagine lawyers wait for the day that someday they'll get to try a case in front of the Supreme Court if you're a trial lawyer in that way I assume canon lawyers just live for the day that someday they get to try to be a saint to become a saint <laughs> so the way the way this trial works is there is a promoter of the cause who would fight for the saint is this a layperson a clergyman this is, or both this is a canon lawyer Okay, so you have your lawyer. You have your lawyer, and this one is called God's Advocate. All right. So this one is fighting for the saint. Then there is a promoter of the faith who looks for the flaws in the saint or doubts about the validity of the miracles. This one is called the Devil's Advocate. Oh, (laughs) how crazy. So this is where we get Devil's Advocate. It's an actual position, or was, is no longer. Okay. In the church, and that's what one of the canon lawyers is called. Because they're literally there to... Advocate for the devil. <laughs> well, and is it, well, is it to advocate for the devil? I mean, yes, the name is Devil's Advocate, but how much is the devil involved versus how much of it is like, look, I know he's cool, but have you considered X? I mean, yes, but both. Because, I mean, it is more direct. One of them is God's advocate, the other one is the devil's, so... But, okay. Sure. I just am not sure what the devil has to do with dead people not becoming saints. Because I'm not sure what the saint, what the devil gains from them not becoming a saint. If we believe that they've lied about stuff or... Oh, so it's more like, where's the devil's influence in this person's life? Yeah, that's probably... Versus one is arguing where is God's influence in this person's life. Yeah, or maybe they're in hell. Maybe they're not actually in heaven. Okay, that, that makes more sense. Thank you for clarifying. So the devil's advocate and God's advocate have a trial. Yep, and they... Who's the judge? The Pope, I guess. I guess if the Pope's the only (laughs) one who gets to decide new saints. Yeah, I don't know how the judge part works of it. I know it's... I know there's the two lawyers. Okay, but they have a trial. Presumably someone rules on the trial. Yeah. Then the next step in this is we get into the 7th century, and the requirements for sainthood are formalized. Someone wrote them down. So the rules are... The process has to be 50 years after the person's death. Okay. And a non-martyr has to perform four miracles after they die. So you can either be martyred or you have to perform miracles after you die? Correct. So someone has to have a vision of you or... Yeah. If someone is like praying to you and there's a miracle... But you can't pray to someone who's not a saint. Uh... (laughs) Brian just made a gesture of, well, you found the loophole. Um, you can privately pray to someone who's not a saint. Okay, but does that mean there are people who know the person? Yeah, or like there's also been stories of people who like walk past a box of bones and are cured. Okay. (laughs) Sure. Okay, so non-canonized or beatified or whatever people, but who lived religious and holy lives... Correct. When their holiness rubs off on people after their death, be it like through in the inspiration of their bones or the visions of them in prayers or whatever, those count as miracles? I thought miracles yes. were things you did while you were alive, like turning water into wine. I mean, those are also miracles, but they don't count the, the purposes of this. Well, obviously, you don't have to worry about canonizing Jesus. So you, you can pray to people once they're beatified, and you don't have to have done all the miracles to be beatified oh okay that helps a little bit the locals are praying to this beatified person and then miraculous things start happening and that's when you get canonized pretty much yeah okay 
So th- is this when those two systems start to collide? Yeah, actually it wasn't until 1969 Pope Paul VI made beatification a step towards becoming a saint. So now you have to be beatified before you become canonized. Basically, yeah. I'm sure somebody is cool enough to not pass go, not collect $200 and go straight on. JP2 if it was like very short. Yeah. But JP2 is not a saint yet because he's not hasn't been dead long enough. Well, speaking of that guy. Great. The last set of changes in the canonization process was done by John Paul II in 1983. Okay. He got rid of the trial, so no more devil's advocate. (laughs) Canon lawyers everywhere shed a tear in the 80s. So there's still a promoter of the faith. Okay, but you cut the devil's advocate. Yeah. And they gather the evidence and they work with medical doctors to verify that the miracles really happened and were not a result of medical treatment. Wait, now there's medicine involved? Well, because you need to prove that the miracles weren't just medicine. But what if they're not medical miracles? I mean, if they're not, then you don't need the doctors. Okay. But if it's relevant to the doctors, they have doctors. But aren't doctors inherently skeptical and not going to just go around declaring things miracles? Doctors, at the very least, can be like, we don't know how this happened. Fair. And I'm sure you have enough Catholic doctors on the planet that somebody's willing to, like, slow nod their way through. But no, like, seriously, there are things where it's like, this person just got better and we don't have a medical explanation for it. And that's good enough for them. And yeah, and that counts as a miracle. Great. I'll take it. So also, the number of miracles you needed was reduced from four to two. That makes it easier. And the waiting period was reduced from 50 to five years. Wait! Did Jamie Two just set a bunch of laws to make himself a saint faster? No, it was not for himself. <laughs> How do we know? So it benefited him, yes. Okay, but what saint was he trying to squeeze through here to that he made all these changes? So Nobody does this for nothing. JP2 beatified 1,300 people and canonized 500. Wow, coming in with the saints, Paul. More than all of his predecessors combined. Like, since the beginning of popes? Yes. Like, since it was the, the official process. Since Alexander or whoever in the yeah. 14th century? Because there were only 285 done during the previous 400 years. Oh my god. So we, a lot of people became saints in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, dude loved his saints. <laughs> Good for him. Some people accused him of doing it as a publicity stunt. Sure. Especially because he really focused on naming saints from Africa and Asia where the church was actively growing in some ways. But also I feel like maybe it's not a bad thing to have a more representational canon. Yes, it's, yes. But also it's it's a marketing ploy. But also if it's God doing all of these things, is is God the one who has this grand marketing plan? Or is the church manipulating the rules? So much complication. Yeah. But the canon of saints got more diverse. It did, which is a good thing. Yeah, sure. It's it's good to have representation. Great. So there's no good count of how many saints there are out there. There's 2,565 listed in the latest edition of the book Lives of the Saints. And some sources say there are as many as 10,000. Wow. But some of them are probably like local beatified People who some small town in somewhere worships, but nobody else. Yeah, and honestly, some of the ones that I will talk about over the course of this podcast maybe didn't exist. Great. (laughs) Because it was so long ago. So that is part of why it is hard to get a good number. And because we didn't start record keeping until like halfway through. So, but is the Lives of the Saints then the official Vatican publication on what counts as a saint? I don't think it's put out by the Vatican, but it's kind of the most official one that we have. Okay. Because somebody's got to be keeping track of this somewhere, right? There's really no comprehensive list. And anywhere you look, that's what they'll tell you is, good luck. Wow, they should have started writing things down. <laughs> uh, I mean, there wasn't an official process for it. It was all local. So I guess hard to get true. it. The number also increased a bunch recently. Francis canonized 813 martyrs of Otranto. It's in Italy. I probably said it wrong. And by being declared a martyr, you get to skip all the bureaucracy, Yep, those are all saints. They were a group of Italians who were beheaded for refusing to convert to Islam in 1480. 
somebody is just going through history books looking for groups of people who got killed for being Christians that we haven't yet declared officially saints. Maybe. Or they're just discovering new ancient texts and everyone's being like, look, martyrs, we found more martyrs. I mean, I think saints are fun. I mean, I am (laughs) charmed by the patronage pop quizzes, even though I'm terrible at them. So I think saints are fun too. Yeah, and patronage has been around throughout all of this, uh, often just based on what the public thinks a person should be the patron of, but sometimes the church will officially also weigh in on certain patronages. Okay, so it's the patronage system is way more unofficial. Yo, oh, for sure. So that's kind of all throughout history up to the present, but I would not be doing my job if I didn't get into a little bit more criticism of saints as a thing. Okay, I'm ready. So Catholics, Orthodox, Christians, Anglicans, and Lutherans all recognize saints as a thing. Okay. Outside of that, people do not. All right. But Anglicans and Lutherans don't really pray to saints in the same way that Mm -hmm. Catholics and Orthodox do. Fair. At their best, saints are models for good behavior, and if you're doing it right, they're people who pray alongside you just because power in numbers with prayer, I guess. And that's kind of the same thing we do down here. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, if you're having a hard time in your life, pray for me. Yeah. People are praying for you up there as well as down here. Yeah. In reality, people end up praying to saints a lot of the time directly, and it kind of puts them in a weird demigod status. Uh, That feels mushy and complicated, for sure. Yeah. There are weird magical elements to it. Like, I mentioned St. Anthony before. Yeah. You bury a statue of him upside down, and before I said it was to help you find lost things, it's actually, he'll tell you the name of your future husband. If you bury a statue of St. Anthony upside down. Yes. Will it come to in a dream? Probably. Part of the upside down thing I've been told is because you're like blackmailing him or like torturing him into it, (laughs) which is extra weird. That's so weird. (laughs) Another upside-down statue you can use if you would like to is St. Joseph will help you sell your house if you bury him upside-down. On the property of the house you're trying to sell? On the property of the house you're trying to sell. Okay, who comes up with these things? Uh, It's all local. Another one is people will put a medal of St. Christopher into their car Mm -hmm. because he is one of the patrons of travelers. Okay, and people wear little St. Necklaces... Because they're trying to connect with specific saints and stuff like that too, right? Yeah, definitely. There's definitely a, like, amulet of protection thing that some people have got going on. Some people use it in a less magically way, and it's more about they're with me, they're praying with me. Mm -hmm. But we definitely get into some magic. And I think maybe that's why I like saints, is that (laughs) there's, like, a sort of magical element to them. That they both feel more grounded in humanity because most of them were real people. Or they at least feel like real people in a certain way. And also this sort of ritual element that comes around them. Somehow, I think I find I'm more connected to. That makes sense. I think that is why people are drawn to them. People like ritual. But like the them being like you is kind of the whole point of Jesus. Like he was supposed to have come down and been a person so that we could relate to our God. Um, So you should be able to pray directly to him like we're supposed to or to God the Father like jesus said to do sure i guess that is what <laughs> i guess that's the difference between people who have a relationship with jesus and god and people who don't you had mentioned before god might be too busy to hear all of your things theologically people would tell you no that's not how god works god can't be too busy to hear things because god is expansive and omnipotent fair um, there's also some biblical references that are kind of against it in the book of Revelation, John tries to bow down and worship an angel, and the angel yells at him and tells Is that where no false idols happens? That happens way earlier. That's Moses. The Ten Commandments don't worship idols. Sure. But yeah, this one just says the angel yells at him and is like, hey, we're both servants. Quit it. Great. <laughs> no worshiping angels. Check. Uh, and then I have one more argument that I really liked and I think was a one that was really good to me. It's from Martin Luther. I'm just going to read his direct quote. Okay. You must make a distinction between the saints who are dead and those who are yet living, and what you must do for the saints. You must turn away from the dead and honor the living saints. The living saints are your neighbors, the naked, the hungry, the thirsty, poor people, those who have wives and children, who suffer shame, who lie in sins. Turn to them and help them. Now our papists, 
turned themselves away from them, and have laid all their honor upon the dead saints, endowing churches, building altars, and wandering around in useless work. All that effort is completely sunk under great storms and waves of sin, in which they forget the poor masses of people and forsake the suffering and the needy. So, if you're worshipping saints and forgetting about people, you don't get to pat yourself on the back for being religious. That's fair. If we're all saints, then you have to treat us all like saints. Yeah, but that being said, I love saints. They're fun. (laughs) There's just something charming about them. Speaking of that, shall we take a break and then we'll come back for our patronage pop quiz? Sounds good. And we're back. And it is time for the patronage pop quiz, where I tell Shannon about a saint, and she has to guess what they're the patron of. I am one for however many we are at right now. I think you might get this one. Okay. What what saint is it? This is Saint Philomena. Ooh, I like that name. We know basically nothing about her actual life. Great. (laughs) All we know is that she was martyred in the early days of the church at the age of 14. Okay. In 1802, her remains were found in the catacomb of St. Priscilla in Rome. Were they preserved? They were bones. Okay. They were definitely bones. I know that sometimes the <laughs> saints don't rot, so... That's true. <laughs> there were stones on top of her remains okay. that had symbols indicating that she was a martyr and that she was named Philomena. That's what we know. She was exhumed, cataloged, and forgotten. Amazing. <laughs> in 1805... Francis de Lusa of Magnano was in the treasury of relics at the Vatican. When he reached her bones, he was suddenly struck with spiritual joy and requested he be allowed to enshrine the bones in a chapel at Magnano. A bunch of miracles began happening at the site of the shrine, including curing of cancer, healing wounds, and curing a woman's severe heart condition overnight. Oh boy! She's the only person to be recognized as a saint solely based on miraculous intercession and not because of anything about her life because we know nothing about her life. Wow. So, Shannon, what is Philomena the saint of? You said this one was going to be good and I really am totally at a loss. (laughs) Uh, Here's a couple of guesses. Okay. Is she the patron saint of cancer patients? Because you said that she cured someone's cancer... Or is she the patron saint of teenagers because she was 14 when she was murdered? Young people. Sure. Uh, She is young people and youth. Great. So my favorite is she is the patron saint of forgotten causes. (laughs) See, I was thinking about saying that she was the patron saint of like lost things, but we already talked about whoever you, St. Anthony or whoever you pray to when you've lost something. But she herself was lost. Yep, that is why she is the patron saint of lost things. Um, uh, forgotten causes. And Yes, forgotten causes. Great. Um, oh, like, people also lost causes. Like, okay. So she has weirdly a long list for someone that we don't know very much about. Clearly someone identifies with this poor girl. Uh, she is the patron against barrenness, against bodily ills, against infertility, against mental illness, against sickness, against sterility... For babies, children, children of Mary, desperate causes, forgotten causes, impossible causes, infants, lost causes, the living rosary, newborns, orphans, poor people, priests, prisoners, sick people, students, test takers, toddlers, young people, youth. Test takers is also a very funny one because you forget things. <laughs> and that's so charming. <laughs> Okay, here's my theory on St. Philomena. This is a hot take. They couldn't find a martyr who was either a baby or a pregnant woman, but they had this teenage girl who was clearly must have been, like, in the flower of her life, and so they just lumped all of the, like, children, baby, and pregnant lady things on her because it's, like, infertility and barrenness and infants and mothers and all sorts of, like, weird things. It's like, you couldn't have found a... A pregnant lady saint, or, like, a saint who was murdered while also in the process of struggling with infertility, or an actual dead baby, uh, and so you just lumped it all on this poor unknown teenage girl. Maybe. We also definitely have better examples of some of those. (laughs) You know? So I had a special reason for picking 
Philomena this week. Okay. It's because I forgot to give you something last week when we were recording the Christmas episode. Oh no! So, Shannon, I got you a Christmas present. I got a Christmas present. All right, so Brian just handed me a red envelope. It has my name on it. I'm going to open it up, and it has a tiny St. Paul. I. Oh, my God, I'm so charmed. I can't even <laughs> explain it. He has a sword and a book. It's I... probably a Bible. All right, I'm going to read the back. <laughs> Paul is one of the most significant figures in all of Christian history. Once a vicious persecutor of Christians, Paul was literally thrown from his horse as God commanded him to change his ways. He became a follower of Christ, and his letters are part of the Bible. Across cities, deserts, and oceans, Paul devoted his life to the messages of Jesus. He was persecuted, imprisoned, and eventually killed for it. Some say that in all the world's history, no one has spread any message as well as Paul, patron of writers, converts, missionaries, marketing, and PR. So I, what Shannon is reading is it's the back of a tiny saint, which is a an adorable cartoon keychain. That he has eyes but no mouth. And our friend David, who edits the show and did our logo, also got a tiny saint. He got the blessed Giorgio Frasati, uh, not a saint because you don't hear him on this show. Also patron of students because David has been in school. Forever. Forever. <laughs> uh, speaking of David, thank you, David, for your awesome logo and also for editing this episode. He is back in town from his many years of schooling in Wales, visiting for the holidays. So very exciting to have him here back in the good old US of A. His brother, Adam, is the creator of our awesome theme song and other associated musics. You can check him out at alteringgravity.wordpress.com. If you want to reach out to us, you can follow us on Twitter at school number four heathens. I'm sure my tiny saint will make it on our Twitter feed very, very soon. You can also email us at sundayschoolforheathens at gmail.com about actually anything or everything. Amen. Amen. Go in peace to like and share the pod.